Welcome to the Bible in Our Culture, an outreach radio ministry of Liberty Remnant Church, where we encourage you to view the culture through the lens of the Holy Bible. Welcome to the Bible and Our Culture, an outreach ministry of Liberty Remnant Church. I'm Pastor J. McPherson. So glad to have you with us. We've been discussing Gideon over the last few weeks. Gideon was an unlikely hero, but God chose him to save Israel from the hands of their enemies. Gideon had a lot of objections. He said, I'm from the weakest tribe. I'm from the weakest clan. I'm the least in my father's house. He was hiding in fear, convinced of his inadequacy. But God chose him anyway, which is encouraging to the rest of us. Gideon's only real credential is God sent him and God was with him. Is that the same thing for you? I pray if you're a follower of Jesus Christ that you have a conviction that God wants to use you despite your weaknesses and frailties, just as he chose Gideon for a great victory. We're going to look at Judges chapter 7 and see the team that God brought around Gideon. In verse 2, it says, The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And whoever I say to you, This one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was three hundred men, but all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So the people took the provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below them in the valley. We see a, a tremendous story of God whittling down an army so he has just a remnant. God was going to use this remnant for his glory. He wanted to be sure this remnant couldn't give glory to themselves. They were too small. They were taking on the Midianites, the Amalekites, and the peoples of the east. So that's at least four or five armies, probably many more. There were so many soldiers, they couldn't number them. So many camels, they couldn't number them. So to whittle it down to 300, well, that was going to assure everyone that God was going to get the glory. And that was his purpose back in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. That's a really profound principle right there. We must see God wants a remnant. See the word remnant throughout the Bible? I, my favorite remnant verse is in Matthew 7 on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus doesn't even use the word remnant. He's talking about the narrow gate and the narrow path versus the wide gate and the wide path. He says... Lots of people are going to go on the wide path. That's easy to find. But only a few, only a remnant, if you will, find the narrow path. 
In other words, it's really easy to get caught up in the world system, get caught up in the culture, and look at the Bible through the lens of the culture. But God says there's just a few, just a remnant, who are so devoted to me that they're going to follow me no matter what. They're going to look at the world through the lens of the Scripture. Let's be that remnant that gives God glory. Now, there's a lot of us that we think, well, a remnant is probably just a few people. They're pathetic. They're going to lose. Now, you can't win an election with the remnant. You have to have the majority, or at least you have to have the electoral college majority, the delegate majority. So remnant looks like pathetic losers, but this remnant brought about victory for the purposes of God. This, re this remnant brought freedom from oppression. Oh, we could use a remnant like that today. Now, God had to whittle them down, and he tells us why. Quote, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. It seems God whittled down the army to so small of number, so everyone would be forced to recognize it was God doing it. So how does that apply to us today? Well, I think God used the craziness of the last few years in America to whittle down a remnant. I think so. Things got crazy fast. I mean, they were getting crazy progressively, incrementally. But man, when COVID hit, wow, things got crazy. All this was happening at the same time of a lot of these uh, George Floyd riots and protests and violence. I think it became really clear who the woke church is. There's really no such thing as a woke church. Church are the called out ones. And if you're woke, well, you're not called out by God. But then there's the awakened church that caught on to what was happening and could see uh, the, the attack on our religious liberty here in America. And they stood up. And there's still those who are trying to keep their head in the sand, just trying to pretend there's not a real culture war going on. Well, after these last few years, it's been really difficult to keep your head in the sand. You kind of have to decide, am I going to shut the church down because the government said so, or am I going to follow God and, and expect God to deliver me out of the hand of my enemies? We've been enjoying the crucible. The crucibles aren't fun. You know what a crucible is? It burns up uh, precious metals, so it separates the pure gold or pure silver from the dross, the hay, the wood, the stubble, things that can burn up. And so it purifies gold, but it's not really fun to endure that type of heat and that type of pressure. We've had to endure some heat and some pressure, but I think it's, it's made us pure. It's really separated the, the dross from the precious metal, and that gives glory to God. God is jealous about his glory. He did not want Israel claiming his glory. Some people might think, well, God must be egotistical. He must be insecure, caring about his glory. No, he is not at all. God, being all-wise and all-knowing, knows, knows his glory is the best thing that we can enjoy. If, his, if he's being glorified, that's good for not just him, that's good for everyone. God doesn't even really benefit from anything. He's self-sufficient. Everything that happens, he remains the same. You can't harm him. You can't discourage him. You can't confuse him. He's always uh, 100 million percent excellent. So when we give him glory, he's not flattered. He enjoys it because we're, we're finally seeing the world for what it is. And we ought to glorify God if we understand who he is and understand what the curse this world's under. But God saw the Israelites' temptation to glorify themselves as competition against him. He used the word against me. 
Part of the reason God prepares a remnant is because he wants the glory for himself. So perhaps we don't see some of the answers to prayer in the way we want them because God won't get the glory as much as quote-unquote Israel would. In other words, God wouldn't get the glory, but some quote-unquote Christian organization would. Some church would. In this divided subculture that we call Christianity, there are a lot of impure motives about seeking the glory for our own organization, our own network, our own church, or even our own selves. Think about it this way. Imagine a church in a big city, and one Sunday morning, there was a person born crippled, pulled up out of a wheelchair and able to walk because of the miraculous power of God. And that same Sunday, somebody who was born blind, never seen in their life, got healed, got their eyesight back, and they could see. Those two huge miracles, would God get the glory? Well, I hope so. He's the one that did it. But call me cynical, just being around uh, church life, I tend to think there's going to be people with their smartphones recording it, posting it on social media, and not just talking about the goodness of God in these two healings, but trying to imply, well, our church is better than yours, because check it out, we got somebody healed. That must mean our character is perfect. That must mean we don't have any sin to deal with. That must mean all our doctrine is better than the rest of yours. Because <laughs> people got healed at our church, not at yours. That would be damaging to the body of Christ. So it makes me wonder, maybe God doesn't want to heal, not because he doesn't have compassion on the person that needs healing, because he, he's mindful of the fact that people would uh, use it for their own glory. So we must seek God's glory over any other subdivision, any other movement. Seek God's glory over your favorite party whether that's the Republican Party, Libertarian Party, some third party, or if you're an unrepentant sinner, the Democrat Party. Nonetheless, we want God's glory over any party. We want God's glory over our favorite organization. I really like Turning Point USA, Charlie Kirk. I like, to, like Dr. Jeff Myers' ministry, Summit Ministries. They're worldview type of ministries, and I think they're doing a great work. But I can't seek their glory over God's glory. And as much as I love my local church, I can't seek the glory of Liberty Remnant Church over God's glory. I, we exist to bring him glory, and he'll do the rest for us, give us what we need, as long as we continue to obey him. So please invite people to your local church, but be sure it's because you value God's glory and not your glory or the glory of your local church. Let's take a quick break and be back in just a moment. Two years ago, Liberty Remnant Church was founded in Spokane by a group of committed Christ followers who, believing God, sought to build a distinct local church for His glory. LRC is a simple, relational, biblical church that holds firm to the basic tenets of biblical Christianity. We believe we are to represent Christ's love, power, and wisdom in every and any facet of society. Perhaps you've seen our pastor, Jay McPherson, or others from Liberty Remnant Church, either standing up at Spokane City Hall or at a local school board meeting in the area. We believe we are called to be salt and light as we bring people to new life in Christ. If you are looking for a local church or know someone who is, please consider what God is doing at Liberty Remnant Church. We meet every Sunday at the Oakwood Inn, 7919 North Division at 10 a.m., for more information or to contact our pastor, please check out our website at libertyremnantchurch.org. Once again, 
That's libertyremnantchurch.org. Welcome back to the Bible and our culture. Once again, I'm Pastor Jay McPherson with Liberty Remnant Church. Excited to have you with us. We've been discussing Gideon and the remnant that God called him to lead to victory. In verse 3 of chapter 7 in Judges, it says, Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. We can observe as we look at that, that God either didn't want the fearful people there, or he was being kind to them. Basically, was this God's mercy toward the fearful in getting them out of a very uncomfortable, tormenting situation? Or was God cutting the fearful from the team? Hey, you guys don't measure up. You're out of here. Well, the Bible doesn't make it clear, but why couldn't it be a little bit of both, kind of, sort of? Fear can sabotage both your present and your future. So fear could have messed up the victory. A bunch of people panicking and, and uh, getting all disturbed and, and jittery and, and doing silly things and causing accidents or whatever. Maybe that was why God didn't want the fearful there. But the Bible also says fear involves torment. 1 John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. Well, that's a great verse to live by. We have to ask ourselves, what blessings do we miss out on because fear has tormented us? We miss out on the joy of the Lord, living a life of joy because we're tormented by fear. Maybe we lose some motivation because instead of feeling like, well, wait, we can do this, we can accomplish this. Oh no, we're fearful. What would happen if, if we take a stand? The government will fine us and regulate us or whatever. And so we have no motivation to really do what God has put in our heart because of fear. Of course, we miss out on peace with fear and we miss out on the victory. We have no hope, no vision for the future if we have fear. Well, maybe we do have vision for the future, a bad one. That's kind of what fear is, a vision for the future that's negative. Our fear should be a fear of the Lord. But when we fear someone else or, or we, feel the, we fear the future, sometimes that fear causes us to expect less from God. I believe that's generally what it does. There is no way constant fear makes you perform better on a regular basis. All right, I, I used to play a lot of basketball before my body got old and betrayed me, but it was harder to make a free throw that you could make a bunch of times in practice. But when the pressure was on the line, fear crept in and, and made you a little jittery, made you uh, a little, little uh, amped up and, and wouldn't shoot your normal shot. That's why they called timeouts to ice the shooter. Or in football, they call, out, call a timeout to ice the kicker, get a little bit of fear to work up in their minds and hearts so that they don't perform well. Well, it's the same thing in our spiritual lives, in our everyday lives. Fear doesn't help us perform, unless maybe it's a fear of God. But you notice this verse seems to indicate that love is our secret weapon to escape torment, to escape fear. If you have an ability to really love people, it draws you out of fear. And your prevalent emotion isn't so much the emotions rooted by fear, but the emotions rooted by love. Now back to our story in Judges 7, it records 22,000 missed out on an amazing victory because they were afraid. Only 10,000 made that first cut. 
So roughly 55% left in fear, only 45% remained. I wonder how the 55%, the fearful, explained themselves after they got home. After there was this great victory, when family came for the Passover or whatever, they would ask them, hey, did you fight in that battle with Gideon? How would they reply if they went home afraid? I'm sure they thought about it a lot. Well, I wasn't really that afraid. But I think my friend was, you see, so I thought I'd give him a pep talk on the way home. I wasn't all that afraid. No, 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 no. Not me. How would they explain themselves? They really took a stand for the wrong thing and said, hey, I'm a coward. I'm, a, I'm afraid. Maybe they would try and spin it this way. Well, I wasn't so much afraid. I was just a little concerned. And, you know, I had a hole in my sandal and I was afraid, of, you know, all this travel could get it infected. And I thought I could have a big wound here. So when they said afraid, I, I knew I wasn't afraid, but I thought, well, I'm kind of concerned. So maybe I should go home. <laughs> they would have to justify themselves in order to save face. I like to look at American history and there's a very intriguing figure in history, Elijah Lovejoy. We could even call him the Reverend Elijah Lovejoy. He was murdered in 1837. Don't confuse this Reverend Lovejoy with the Simpsons Reverend Lovejoy. I think that Simpsons Lovejoy was really funny actually because I grew up in the church and I understand religious humor, but I really felt it was disrespectful to the things of God and almost sacrilegious. Remember, The Simpsons came out in the late 80s, right after the scandals with PTL, Jim Baker, Jimmy Swaggart, all that. So they really piled on making fun of God's church and making fun of pastors. And to this day, people love to slam pastors every chance they get. Part of it is because of Reverend Lovejoy on The Simpsons. But the real Reverend Lovejoy, Elijah Lovejoy, wasn't your typical reverend at all. He kind of grew up in the church. I think his dad may have been a minister of some kind, but he backslid. And, and during the Second Great Awakening, he felt the call. He felt the uh, conviction for his sin. He repented and went off to, to seminary and became a minister. But instead of planning a church or applying for a job at a church, he wanted to do a Christian newspaper. And he did it down in St. Louis, Missouri, which at that time was a slave state. And he would apply, this is what the Great Awakening did, it would apply the Bible to the culture. Basically, he was the Bible in our culture back in the day, but instead of a, a radio show or a podcast, he used the printed word. And he talked about how the Bible applies to everyday life, including he condemned slavery. Well, he didn't like that in a slave state. Or he, he didn't mind it. The people around him didn't like that at all. He was pushing abolitionism in a slave state. So they persecuted him. They threw his printing press into the Mississippi River. They heckled him. They did all sorts of stuff. And he said, hey, I'm not pushing, I'm not publishing an abolitionist newspaper. I'm publishing a Christian newspaper. I'm just applying the word of God to today. And that's what we do at Liberty Remnant Church and the Bible and our culture. We, people say you're too political. No, we're just applying the principles that we see in Scripture to our everyday life. And so in Reverend Lovejoy's case, Elijah Lovejoy, it meant talking about slavery for what it was. He endured such persecution. After so many printing presses, he moved across the river into a free state where they still would come and, and uh, heckle him, abuse him, destroy his printing press. And one time the whole mob gathered outside his print shop and, and they began to call him out and said, hey, come out. We're going to we're going to put an end to you once and for all. Well, he escaped out the back door and somebody shot him and he died. Uh, this was back in 1837. And guess what? Nobody was ever even charged for his murder. A few people were charged for rioting, but they got exonerated and nothing really happened because, well, he was a troublemaker. 
he's applying the Bible to slavery. We don't want to hear that. And it would seem like such a failure because it didn't seem like he had too many converts, a waste of a good life and a waste of a lot of hard work and a lot of money rebuying printing presses that were destroyed. Seemed like he might have been a failure. Not many heeded his teachings or heeded his cause. But the Bible talks about a seed being planted. A seed must die in the ground before it produces a harvest. In that same way, Elijah Lovejoy's life and martyrdom produced a harvest of righteousness because many began to see how the slave power was opposed to free speech. And they began to think about what else they could be wrong about. They began to rethink slavery in general. They began to rethink what they were taught was normal. And it eventually led to the abolition of slavery in America. But could you imagine how he could have given into fear all this time, all this persecution, all these threats? The Bible says in Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. That's kind of a weird proverb because it basically says, if you, if you break it down to just the nuts and bolts, it says in fear is strong confidence. But it's not a fear of man. It's not a fear of the culture. It's not a fear of the future. It's not a fear of failure. The fear of the Lord is a strong confidence. It seems that if you're really focused on who God is and obeying him because he's all powerful and he's going to reward you one way or another, and you really spend all your fear on the Lord, you don't have any left over to fear anybody else. So it comes across as a strong confidence. Pray that you fear the Lord. And if you do, it will be a strong confidence. I'm not telling you that. Proverbs 14.26 is telling you that. New Testament verse that we often think about when we think of fear is 2 Timothy 1.7. Paul is on his deathbed, basically. He knows he's going to be beheaded for preaching the faith. So he writes to his son in the faith, Timothy, a pastor at Ephesus. And though he's in chains and about to die, he tells Timothy this, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Wow. There is a fear that is just natural and normal that I don't think is sinful fear, but Paul was talking to Timothy about a spirit of fear, a spirit of fear that immobilizes us and causes us to cave to pressure from the world, cave to what people think, to please people rather than God. But Paul says, no, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. But what has he given us? Well, a spirit of power, which makes you less afraid, spirit of love, perfect love casts out fear, and a spirit of a sound mind. Most of our fears have nothing to do with reality. Most of our fears are fantasy-based. If you're afraid of a, a spider... Well, what do you think about between you and a spider? What would the Vegas odds be in a fight to the death? Probably go with you over a spider. So there's a whole lot of messed up thinking, unhealthy thinking, that has to do with a lot of the fear we faced. They're they're not real. So God has given us not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, a spirit of love, and a spirit of a sound mind. Back to Judges chapter 7, verse 4. The Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water and I will test them for you there. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. What? So 3% of the 10,000 made the final cut. 0.9% of the original 22,000 got to stay on the team. Everybody else was let go. Everybody else was fired or cut. Now, the Bible doesn't explain why God chose to get rid of those who got down on their knees to drink, but there must be a reason. I mean, he didn't just draw straws. Hey, just play rock, paper, scissors to whittle down to 300. He put the test of drinking. I guess he wanted to remove those who had a drinking problem in some way, shape, or form. 
those who got down on their knees, might we speculate that they were really ready to indulge themselves? They got down on their knees, stuck their beak right into the water and just, oh man, I'm thirsty. I need some water. I need, I was really getting parched there for a bit. Maybe just getting down on your knees, sticking your face in the water was a sign of potential lack of self-control. Maybe it revealed an impulse toward indulging natural desires rather than exercising discipline. But those who lapped the water from the, the river or the brook to their mouth, maybe they showed an awareness about one's surroundings, which is really important in military success. In other words, they had leadership. They were big picture soldiers. So while some of their comrades are, got their face down in the brook, they're looking around on one knee, seeing the horizon. Are there any, any bad guys coming to attack us off on the horizon? Are there a cloud of dust around the mountains? Maybe, maybe somebody's mounting a fence against us. Hey, I wonder how, how Zedekiah is doing. Him and uh, Abugazoo, they, they got in a fight, but are they getting along now? They're not just indulging themselves by drinking water, and we need water, but they were drinking the water they needed, but at the same time, looking around, having vision about their surroundings. I think that's the case. God wants us to be disciplined in an age of frequent distractions. So many distractions. I think anybody with a smartphone has ADD after a year or so, maybe less. We all have a temptation towards lust and offense. That is, something happens, we've got all this anger and frustration about what's going on in the world. I think especially as conservative Christians, we're frustrated about what the governor's pushing on us and the White House and the, the entertainment industry is shoving their values and immorality down our throat all the time. And we, we really get upset with this. We're really frustrated. So then when our brother in the Lord has a different interpretation of a passage than we do, we're like, I've had enough of all this. Please be careful not to indulge yourselves with so many interruptions to get you off track. There's always a potential to be offended. And that's how uh, the devil stops the will of God probably more than any. He likes to get people offended and he likes to get people upset with each other, misunderstand and blow it out of proportion. But God also wants us to be aware of what's happening on the horizon, just beyond ourselves, into society, into eternity. Do you have a, a vision for eternity? Are you thinking daily about the reward you're going to have in heaven? And are you thinking about the generations? What am I going to leave when I go on to my reward? What type of impact am I having now that's going to remain and continue even after I'm dead? understand the times and the seasons from God's perspective. I'd like to close with Colossians 3, 1 and 2. I think it encapsulates what we've been talking about. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. These soldiers that lapped the water up from the brook to their mouth, they were looking at the big picture. They were looking at things above, set their minds on things of heaven and not on earthly things. And I feel we got to do the same thing. Yeah, we're in a real culture war here in America, but we've got to reject the fear of failure and we've got to embrace a vision for eternity. And that's the Bible in our culture. Catch you next time. If you miss an episode, you can catch us wherever you find podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Bible in our culture, an outreach radio ministry of Liberty Remnant Church. If you want to support this ministry financially, you could do so by going to our website, libertyremnantchurch.org backslash give, and select radio ministry. See you next week at the same time.